Hello, Huron Zani here from the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. Today in Tales of Baroque with my guest Dr. Alan Maddox, we will be discussing the next generation of Baroque music stars and what we can learn from the great composers and performers of the Baroque period. We look forward to your company for an intriguing tale that will undoubtedly leave you better informed for the Brandenburg's concert series, Next Generation Baroque. Well, thanks, Hugh. It's uh, good to be here. Lovely to have you back. Often nowadays, uh, we see a lot of effusive language describing uh, describing everything from toothpaste to art. But uh, what is it, when we use the word great, what is it that really makes composers like Vivaldi, Bach and Handel stand up? Uh, yeah, this sort of language of, of greatness actually comes essentially from the 19th century and it belongs to the Romantic era and it continued on through the, the kind of modern um, period of the 20th century, uh, where our kind of view of the past was uh, a lot of it was about identifying um, the great men, that go, and they were nearly always men, of course, uh, who were identified as capital G great, mm-hmm. and therefore great men produced great works and did great deeds and so forth. And the idea of establishing what constituted greatness was in itself a significant part of the way people thought about history. Uh, we think about it less that way now. Um, and so uh, I try to avoid using the language of, of greatness for the most part. Yeah. It's hard to keep it, keep it, it out of one's vocabulary. Um, the, which is not to say that these musicians weren't outstanding and, uh, and probably um, producing music of better quality than a lot of their contemporaries. And is it to do with opportunity then? Or, or is it something uh, different? Do they really stand out? Uh, it's a kind of combination of things, I think. Um, one interesting way to look at it is what was their standing at the time compared to the way that we see them now? Mm-hmm. So uh, in the generation of, of people like Handel and Bach and Vivaldi, they're the names that we know now. They are the outstanding musicians whose work we hear in performances and in recordings and so on above all. But interestingly, at the time, they were not necessarily that famous or successful. Uh, Vivaldi had quite a lot of success with his uh, concertos particularly, and part of that was because they were published not in Italy but in the Netherlands, and therefore they were distributed in print across Northern Europe, where most music never appeared in print. It Mm. was uh, disseminated in manuscript copies, and therefore not that many copies, and it was only if you happened to get hold of it that you even knew about it. Uh, Bach was uh, recognised as an authority on organ building and uh, organ playing and as a kind of learned composer, a sort of academic kind of composer, uh, when he was based in Leipzig, but wasn't really that famous as as a major composer in the period. Handel was a, a big name primarily in London, but he was actually operating outside the mainstream of Italian opera, which was his, his main thing. Mm. And so there were other people like Porpora, uh, Caldara, who I'm working on at the moment, who mm-hmm. were actually more famous names and more kind of mainstream uh, and influential at the time, who we're only really rediscovering now. Uh, so and to some extent, it's accidents of history, why yes. particular people have... Uh, 
uh, been remembered and continue to be performed uh, and others not. Obviously, manuscript copies, um, are, especially nowadays, autographed manuscripts are fantastic resources for us to learn from. Um, we can sort of even uh, find things like Beethoven's laundry list um, uh, scanned and digitized on the British Library uh, website. But but essentially, you know, is, were publishing houses responsible for the dissemination and, and success of composers at the time? Interestingly, no, for the most part. So I mentioned Vivaldi's um, concertos and, and also some of his sonatas being printed and disseminated, and that certainly had an influence. Um, Bach famously, J.S. Bach famously got hold of uh, a copy of Vivaldi's early uh, published set of concertos, the Stradamonico, um, uh, and that influenced his the way that he set about writing concertos. But for the most part, um, there was a tiny proportion of music that ever went into print, um, particularly of, of Italian and German music during this period. So it was mostly what was disseminated in manuscript or what people heard, and that meant mostly in the theatre, because uh, the main places where large numbers of people would hear a composer's work was in the opera theatre. Um, how were things different in terms of the theatre and the public reception of those performances? Obviously, going to the theatre was a very different thing back then, wasn't it? Yeah, certainly it was. Um, uh, the theatres were pretty large, uh, some of them, um, though not as big as, uh, as our really big theatres today. Um, and a lot of people would pack in. In fact, they'd pack them in much closer than we would consider comfortable today. Um, and uh, they, were, they tended to be noisy. Uh, people didn't sit in deadly silence the way we do now, almost kind of venerating the music. Uh, we go to an orchestral concert and sit there as if we're in church. And that, again, is a 19th century invention that comes from the period of Beethoven and after. So in the 18th century, you went to the theatre and expected to, to have a chat to your neighbour. Uh, if you mm. were a wealthy person sitting in one of the boxes in an opera theatre, you would have your dinner brought in and uh, and have conversation and, and eat and so forth. And uh, there's a, a famous account by an English visitor to uh, Venice who was doing the grand tour and um, writing home about uh, what to do and not to what not to do mm. when visiting Venice. And he said, uh, you must go to the theatre. This is one of the big things to do in Venice. Uh, but uh, if you don't know somebody in the aristocracy who has a box and you can, so you can't sit up uh, high uh, looking over everybody else, you'll have to buy a ticket and sit in the stalls. And if you do that, don't wear your best clothes and don't sit near the edge. You should sit in the middle of the stalls. And the reason is because the aristocrats in the boxes have their dinner and then scrape off their plates over the, the, the edge of their box into the, the oh, stalls. Dear. <laughs> yes, it was quite a, quite, a, quite a lively scene. Quite a say. different experience, and, and all of the smells and sounds that would have come with that. That's right, yeah. Was there a, a greater proximity with the performers themselves? Were they just as popular and, and, uh, and well-known as the composers? Or For opera particularly, especially from the 1720s onwards, the cult of the, the star singer becomes a really big thing. This is the period when we get uh, Farinelli, for example, uh, Senesino, um, Faustina Bordoni, um, Cuzzoni, these are the famous names of the star singers, um, many of whom Handel uh, went out of his way to recruit for London 
um, because he had a fair bit of money at his disposal and this was the place to go uh, for those singers to, to kind of travel overseas and, and, uh, and have a big um, opportunity for stardom. Uh, and it was that star power that brought people in. So this is the first period where we have a real instance of the kind of star power that we now have with, with popular music and also with the really big stars. Of, so are we talking uh, uh, about this as being something that already existed in London and elsewhere, other major musical centres like <clears throat> in Venice uh, um, uh, from before Handel's arrival in London around 1710? Uh, or, or, or is this something that he was largely responsible in, in London anyway of, of cultivating? Uh, in terms of what was happening in London, yes, it, uh, it starts pretty much with Handel's establishment of his opera company when he when he uh, arrives there. So there were um, operas being put on, but not many. It was kind of experimental. Mm. Remember, the generation before had been people like uh, Henry Purcell, yes. who wrote only one all-sung opera, what we would now call an opera today, which mm. is Dido and Aeneas. And it was, as far as we know, never given a public performance. So the idea of having a public theatre where you could buy a ticket, go in and hear professional musicians performing for you, um, that existed in, in London, but it was what we now call semi-opera. It was mm. plays which had a lot of music in them and a lot of songs, but they weren't sung all the way through the way Italian operas had been for for. A, a century before mm. this. So when Handel establishes this, it's essentially a new thing for the English audience. And he has to build an audience that's interested in this kind of thing. And one way to do that is to bring these big Italian stars in. And so an opera like um, Julius Caesar, that we're going to have some excerpts from in this, this program, uh, is an example of this um, new style, in a sense, that he's establishing with his big-name star singers uh, and that really kind of carries the scene by storm, partly because it is such a novelty, I think, in, in London at this time. Now, in bringing it back to a, a modern uh, context, obviously the, the, the Brandenburg has been lucky um, and blessed with, with great performances by several artists that have gone on to have that sort of star uh, career in their own right um, in, in, in a modern musical context. And uh, two of uh, the, the artists that spring to my mind are Graham Pushy and Yvonne Kenny. And, uh, and in the next concert series, Next Generation, we've got um, Madison Nano, who's currently studying with Yvonne Kenny over in, in, in London at Guildhall, coming and performing uh, some of the same arias that, um, that Yvonne recorded with the Brandenburg back in 1998. Uh, so, so how would you see Graham Pushy and, and Yvonne Kenny compare to some of the other um, opera stars that you mentioned of before of Handel's time? The opera scene now, of course, is fairly different from what it was at that time. It's now a kind of well-established, mature industry, and it really is an industry that operates, of course, internationally. And so uh, the singers who are successful now tend to operate internationally. Um, it's uh, hard to make a career based just in one place unless you're in one of the really major centres and a, a very well-established artist. So most uh, professional singers move around quite a bit and uh, they tend to, to specialise to some extent in particular kinds of roles, in particular the music of particular styles, and they're, they're then hired to go to particular theatres that want to put on that kind of music. And that, in a sense, is quite different from what happened in the 18th century because at that time uh, there was essentially... Well, there were two styles of opera. There was uh, Italian opera and French opera. Mm. French opera was really only done in France mm. and was done by French 
musicians. Um, Italian opera was the kind of international style uh, in the early 18th century and was performed in, uh, of course, in, in Italy, Austria, Germany, uh, to some extent in Eastern Europe, in Poland, for example, and then, of course, with Handel's company in England. Um, so the people who sang that repertoire only did one style, essentially, that that was the style of music that was, uh, that was in, mm. and everything they sang was new. Whereas now our singers have to sing a huge range of stuff, uh, right going, going back potentially to 1600 or so when opera was invented. So there's 400 years of different kinds of music that uh, singers potentially have to master now in order to, to have an effective career. Why don't we hear a little bit of Yvonne singing Da Tempeste, one of the famous arias from Julius Caesar. does research play in young performers developing and preparing for for concerts today? Most uh, singers training today, as like other um, professional performers, uh, will not only go and have lessons from a teacher, they will do a university degree, they'll have a, a bachelor's degree, probably a master's as well in performance. And as part of that, many of them will do uh, some serious research on the, the history of the, the music that they're doing, the analysis, how does the music work and so forth. Uh, and uh, that, of course, will all play into the way that they perform it. Um, so uh, that will involve typically, particularly for people working in historical performance, um, will involve reading up on some of the, pri- the primary sources, the treatises and about how to sing and play and so forth, um, hopefully in the original languages or at least in translation. And that tells us a great deal about 
uh, the way people thought about music at the time, and uh, things that we can know at least, which is not everything, but uh, but some things that we can understand about uh, the way people um, performed in the past. So, for musicians nowadays, uh, are there two are there two branches? You know, historically performed informed performance, and then uh, more modern uh, based uh, stylistic performance. Uh, at this point in our kind of cultural history, I suppose they're fairly distinct. Um, now, that's not to say that you can only do one or the other. Most musicians who work in historical performance will also do some work in, in modern performance, um, even if it's teaching, say, the modern violin as well as playing the historical one, or that kind of thing. Uh, nevertheless, there is a fair bit of distinction in the way that you play. Of course, the instruments are different in most cases uh, between historical and, and modern ones, and so you have to actually learn to play a different instrument. And when you do, you're playing it in a different style because the kind of music is different. Um, but it's certainly a development of the last uh, 50 years, maybe less, that uh, it's now the case that, for example, you'll pretty rarely hear a modern orchestra playing on modern instruments like, say, the Sydney Symphony, playing Bach or Handel or that kind of music. They'll still do the Four Seasons probably from time to time, but uh, for the most part they'll be tending to, to steer clear of that music for which there are now specialist orchestras playing on historical instruments. And is, and so is, it, is it because there's a conflict of interest uh, playing this, this music on, uh, on modern instruments uh, you know, isn't quite the same? Is, is, is that the reason for that or is it more so of a, um, you know, a, a more marketing, branding sort of thing? Oh, it's a bit of all of those things, probably. And certainly people do continue to play, um, particularly, say, pianists will play Bach's keyboard music because it's such an established part of their repertoire. Mm. Uh, and uh, there's nothing to say that that is not a good thing to do, but it's more and more understood that what we do when we play that way is that, in a sense, you're playing a kind of arrangement of the piece. It's almost a transcription for a different instrument, in the same way that you can perfectly well play, say, the, the Bach cello suites on the marimba as a, a mm. percussion instrument. Uh, Why not? Or on the saxophone. It's still wonderful music, and it actually works really well in uh, on some different kinds of instruments. And in a sense, if you play Bach's harpsichord music on the piano you're kind of doing a similar thing it's it's kind of a uh, transcription for a different sort of instrument and it can it's still wonderful music and works wonderfully well but in a very different way so I guess the thing that distinguishes the historically informed performance style is that it's an attempt inevitably an incomplete and uncertain attempt but nevertheless a serious attempt to try and understand how the music worked when it was new, what the composers and musicians uh, creating and performing the music uh, thought they were doing and and the, the kinds of sounds that we think they were making. Mm. When they and did. I, I suppose we've touched on essentially the premise uh, at the heart of the, the, the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra is that uh, it's all about authenticity, trying to recreate uh, a sound that, uh, that may not have been heard for, for hundreds of, uh, of years in the case of a, an Australian uh, premiere or world premiere of, of, of a work of Handel's or, or someone that, that's been rediscovered and then um, uh, recontextualised that uh, for, a, for a modern audience. So there are certain concessions that obviously need to be made um, uh, and there are certain things that we don't know, but we're essentially trying to recreate a performance 
that would have been hopefully similar to, to what was played at the time. Uh, is, is this something that, uh, that uh, of a young violinist like Annie Gard, for example, is this something that she would have been studying then uh, during her time at the, the Sydney Conservatorium? Yeah, Annie uh, is a good example of somebody who specialised in uh, historical performance through her university degree, uh, and so she's uh, um, come out as uh, a specialist in that area and uh, a real expert. And uh, it does take a real commitment to playing on a historical instrument to come out of the level of virtuosity that you're going to hear in this performance. Uh, so somebody who's playing on both modern and historical instruments, it's quite tough to do. Some people do it, like the the uh, leader of the orchestra, for example, Sean Lee Chen, is a wonderful player on both historical and modern instruments. Mm. Uh, but uh, for many people who rise to the top of the profession, it uh, there's a need to, to some extent, to specialise in one or the other. Instrument. So what specifically about the sound? What is different in terms of the sound? What, what things do we tend to hear differently on the historically informed performance? performance uh, uh, side of things. Uh, I should uh, start by saying that I'm not a string player and so I, uh, I won't try and be too kind of technical about what the differences are but as a listener I think what you hear is the some of the things in a way hearing a, a string instrument played by itself like this in a solo piece with no accompaniment is kind of the, the purest way in a sense of hearing what the difference is and part of that is uh, the um, construction of the instrument using gut strings, for example, gives you a different kind of tone colour than you get from modern steel strings. Um, using a historical bow uh, gives you a different kind of sound through the stroke of the bow. And this is, one, of, in a way, one of the big differences in string playing, that on a modern bow, it's designed specifically to give you a really even sound all the way from the beginning of the, the bow stroke to the end. It will be pretty much as loud and making the same kind of tone at the beginning and at the end of the bow stroke. And that's exactly what you want in late 19th century and much of 20th century string music because it allows you to play a long, smooth, even line with almost a sense of, of no breaks in it at all. Mm. You could go on playing um, with uh, like a, a kind of vocal line with um, in one breath, mm. as it were, on and on. Uh, and that suits a lot of 19th century music really well. But a lot of 18th century music was constructed in breaths, as it were. Uh, and the Baroque bow is weighted differently. It's weighted more heavily at the, uh, the frog, the hand end where you hold it, and more lightly at the tip. And that gives a distinct shape to each kind of phrase that you play. And so you can hear some of that in the, the way that it's sort of built into the music that that um, phrasing works. Now, uh, when we're not going to be hearing in Next Generation, we're not going to be hearing Annie play the whole of the violin partita number two in D minor, but just the chacona from that, that work. So uh, maybe explain to us, Alan, a little bit uh, about where uh, this movement fits into the larger work. The... Um Peace comes as the last movement of the partita number two, as you said, which has five movements in total. And it's interesting thing that the other four movements are pretty much what you'd expect to see as the standard makeup of a partita in this period, the set of four movements in kind of dance forms. And they, depending on how you play it, they come to more or less 13 minutes or so in total for the four movements. Then you get the chacona, which by itself is the same length. It's about 13 minutes as well. Uh, so it's completely disproportionate. And it's also not 
necessary to the scope of the partita. Uh, why is it there? It seems to be just tacked on the end, in a sense. I mean, it struck me as a little odd when I was uh, going through the, the score myself and, and uh, then uh, continued to turn page after page after page of the last movement. <laughs> This is a thing that, of course, musicians have thought long and hard about over the, the last uh, couple of hundred years, really, about what is this piece doing there? Why is it the way that it is? And, uh, of course, the ultimate answer to that is we don't know and we will probably never know. <laughs> but um, we can observe a few interesting things about it. Uh, one is that the chacona as a form is one of the, the kinds of pieces of which there were uh, a number of different sorts of piece like this in the period where it's based on a short bass pattern uh, what in English was called a ground bass Uh, it's only a couple of bars long and it's just a short descending line Uh, and that is repeated over and over again throughout the piece and over the top you're essentially doing a set of variations Um, and of course in a piece that long there are dozens and dozens of them it goes on and on and the extraordinary thing is how Bach can construct this into one big seamless but logical, coherent uh, structure. And so many uh, great musicians have commented on the the fact that this enormous piece uh, has this kind of underlying coherence to it. It seems to be carrying... not It's not just entertaining nice music. It seems to be carrying deep ideas that mm. are conveyed through this big structure. And and is this, uh, in terms of the, the structure of, of uh, having a, a ground bass and then, as you referred to it, um, and and variations occurring over the top, is this uh, something that was new for solo violin repertoire at the time or was this a style that already existed, that composers would write in this manner? Uh, the form in itself was not new at all. The idea of doing variations over a, a melody or a bass pattern uh, went back at least a couple of centuries before this. What seems to be new about the, the Chaconna in particular is the scale on which it's done and the kind of complexity with which it's done, particularly for a single string instrument. It's the kind of music which in the previous generation or two would not have seen so out of place on the viola de gamba. Was he one of the first composers to do this? Uh, not the first, but he. But there was not a lot of this for the violin uh, before his time. Uh, there are some famous pieces by um, Heinrich Bieber, a generation earlier, and a couple of other Bohemian and Austrian composers, uh, also virtuoso violinists, who who wrote pieces of this kind. In fact, there is what might even have been a kind of model for this big chacona uh, by Bieber, uh, who also wrote a large. Um, Passacaglia, which is essentially the same kind of, of piece on a, a repeating ground bass uh, for the solo violin. Uh, it's not as big, not as complex as Bach's, but it might be a kind of model for it. But apart from that, there's very little that we could say as a direct precedent for this kind of piece. Obviously, you, you've, you've gone to a few concerts in your time. Um, <laughs> one or two. <laughs> one, one or two. Um, what, what do we look for in terms of live performance? What sort of things can we observe? Um, I guess uh, as audience members, it's uh, really salutary to remember that what we're seeing in a live performance is a one-off. It will Mm. never be the same uh, if you hear it again the next night. The performance will be different. Uh, And the performers are doing a kind of tightrope act. Um, When uh, we hear these kinds of very difficult pieces played on recordings, 
the musicians have had multiple opportunities to get it right. You know, they'll do multiple takes of the recording and if something goes slightly wrong, if the, the timing is a little bit out or something, they can go back and do it again. In live performance, of, of course, what you see is what you get or what you hear is what you get. Mm. And that's part of, of course, what makes it so exciting and, and uh, such a thrill to be there in the hall and what you can't reproduce unless, by listening to a recording. Uh, and it's also worth bearing in mind that when we go to the the concert hall and see a live performance, we are seeing it as well as hearing it. Uh, there was uh, a period, um, one of my, my colleagues, um, uh, Professor Michael Halliwell, was doing a, a study a while ago on the early history of the song recital. And there was a period where they experimented, I think in the beginning of the 20th century, with the performers, the singer and pianist on the stage, being behind a screen. The idea was that it didn't distract you from just listening to the music. Of course, once recordings come out, there's not really much point because that's what you're doing anyway. You're hearing the music without seeing the musicians. But the idea was you might be distracted by looking at the musicians instead of just listening to them. But in a way, that's exactly what we go to the concert hall for. We do want to see them, and mm. it makes a difference to the way we hear the music. When we can see the musicians and watch what they're doing and see them interact, and perhaps the eye contact that you may get between the musicians as they work, which keeps them together, which gives them ideas about how this particular performance is going to go, how it might be slightly different in the moment from what another performance is going to be. And I suppose elaborating on that, um, uh, the Brandenburg released a, a fantastic, well, I think of it as fantastic anyway, album of uh, Handel's Concerto, uh, Concerti Grossi from Opus 6. Mm. Now there are 12 uh, Concerti Grossi in that particular uh, uh, opus, and, and they're all there on a, uh, this double, double CD. But um, uh, and as fantastic as, as the recording it is, uh, we're going to be hearing one of them live. And I'm, uh, I haven't heard this particular one live. Um, and I'm really looking forward to it as part of Next Generation. Uh, what, what sort of, in, a, in then the larger context with the larger ensemble, like this Concerto, Concerto Grosso that we are going to hear, is that just amplified, that whole uh, the, 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 the risk and, and reward potentially of live performance? Uh, yeah, it is. Um, obviously, there's a complexity in getting a whole stage full of musicians to to work together in a way that is um, co coherent and coordinated, but also spontaneous in the moment. So there's this, uh, and, and it's part of the thrill of live performance, I think, is this tension between, on the one hand, the precision that keeps everything together and, uh, and has, gives us a common purpose, that we know what we're trying to express and we express it together, but at the same time, the flexibility that it will come out a little bit differently according to the acoustic, the feel, the audience, uh, how everybody is on that particular night, how many times we've done it before and so forth, mm. all will make a difference. And are there specific aspects of the music itself that were the way it was written that, that help or hinder um, in the success of that sort of endeavour? Yeah, the Concerti Grossi are particularly interesting because they uh, were written in a way which uh, kind of contrasts to sets of musicians and yet brings them together. Now in a solo concerto we're used to the idea that you have one musician out the front, the violinist or pianist or whoever it is who plays the solo and the orchestra plays the accompaniment. But in a concerto grosso you have a group of soloists who do the, the solo bits and they do them almost entirely together. Uh, and so they form a kind of group within a group. Mm. Um, 
And these are normally the leaders of the first and second violins and the cellos. And so some of the time they play as a little ensemble by themselves and then the rest of the orchestra comes in and sort of reinforces them for the the tutti sections. And so that takes a a different kind of coordination where sometimes they're playing as chamber musicians almost in their own little ensemble. And they have specific names, these groups, don't they, in Italian? Yes, indeed, yeah. yeah. So the uh, concertino, the the little concerto or the the, the little ensemble is the the group of soloists. And the ripieno, um, the the reinforcements almost, uh, or or just the tutti, the the everybody, is the rest. Um, So tutti really means when everybody's playing together, the ripieno is the, the rest of the musicians who join. And here, in the first movement of the Concerto Grosso, Opus 6 and Number 12 in B minor, we'll, we'll hear just that. Instrumentalists, obviously, we can be quite specific. We've, we 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 understand because we have examples of how those instruments were were built and 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 can recreate in a way what um, what they would have sounded like and and in an informed way try and use those instruments uh, uh, as we think they would have been used at the time. But how does it work for a singer? I mean, obviously, you have the voice you're given, and that's what you've got. And uh, how do they go about recreating a a, st- uh, a style that is now almost 300 years old. You're exactly right. The problem for singers is different from what it is for instrumentalists because uh, the piece of technology you're using to make the sound is your own body. And so we can say uh, probably there is very little difference in the bodies that we have now from what we had uh, two or 300 years ago. The, the, the technology in that sense is the same thing, but the way you use it uh, it makes an enormous difference to the kind of sound that comes out. And in that sense, a voice is a far more flexible instrument than any other kind of, uh, of piece of technology we have for, for making sounds in orchestras and so forth. And so for a young singer like Madison Nonoa, who's going to be singing with us in Next Generation, uh, would she be learning about how to use her voice in specific ways appropriate for, for performing Handel? 
Uh, yeah, most singers who sing this kind of repertoire now do specialise in it to some extent. Uh, and But the way that, that people are trained still is fairly varied. Um, what uh, And part of the challenge with this is, of course, trying to understand how people did sing in the past uh, and in the absence of recordings because the voice is such a flexible thing that can make so many different kinds of sounds. Uh, we can't really... Um, say too much definitely about how it was done we have to make some educated guesses based on the sources that we have now some of that is the music itself and the way it's written um, the, the kinds of uh, very fast passages for example which are common in music of the 1720s and 30s but are much less common in the late 19th century probably call for a different kind of way of using the voice uh, we can also tell from the books about how to sing, of which we have some from the 17th century onwards, but we have to be very careful about how we interpret them because uh, they often don't tell us the things that we would really like to know. <laughs> For example, they don't tell us uh, anything really physical about how to uh, configure your body other than stand up straight and smile. Yes. Um, <laughs> they, uh, they don't tell us much of the kind of the, de- the technical detail of how to sing. Were there any... Uh, you, you've talked about the stars, the operatic stars um, uh, that were uh, essentially Handel's major attraction for his, his works in, in London. Were there any works that, w- that survive today that, that would have come down from, from those particular stars? Because obviously as the, mu- the, the, the stars themselves, the singers themselves... Uh, they would have been intimately aware of what they were doing with their bodies. Are there any uh, sources uh, surviving? What we have uh, about the the kind of technicalities of singing comes not really from the performers who are busy performing, but from singing teachers. And we do have a couple of important uh, sources from the 18th century uh, from teachers of of singing who were themselves singers as well, uh, who taught in the Italian style uh, that we're going to hear these these pieces by Handel, for example, uh, from in this program. Uh, they were uh, Pier Francesco Torsi, who wrote uh, famous, the most important uh, treatise on singing in the 18th century in, in 1723, uh, and uh, Giambattista Mancini, who wrote a similar kind of book in the 1770s. And now, th- both of those dates are actually after uh, they postdate some of Handel's works that we're going to hear. Um, so, so this, but it was certainly at the same time. Seventeen twenty-three falls pretty much right in the middle of Handel operating in, in London. That's right. Torsi is particularly particularly important to us from that point of view because he is exactly contemporary, effectively, with uh, all of this kind of repertoire, the Handel, the Vivaldi, and and so on, style of of opera in the early part of the 18th century. And when he wrote the book, he was himself uh, in the the latter part of his life, and so he had been around a long time, had seen a lot. Um, And some of what he devotes the book to talking about is the kind of corruption of musical style and how things have, in my day, things were much better. Right, Okay. Is, uh, we see, this idea is not really, new. <laughs> throughout history, the, the, um, uh, older musicians and, and people in other fields, no doubt too, tend to, to, to uh, look back uh, with a bit of uh, rose-coloured glasses probably on the way things were in their youth. But nevertheless, he, he gives us some really important insights. And one of the things that he talks about is actually the he mentions the two rival prima donnas who Handel hired for London uh, um, and, and appeared in some of these operas in exactly this period, uh, Francesca Cuzzoni and uh, Faustina Bordoni. And he actually says that these two uh, represent the best of the modern style, that, that they can do both the spectacular, fast, high and 
singing and so forth, and they can sing with expression, lyricism and so on. And this is part of what he's saying is, is what's important in singing and what is, is missing in some of the modern performers of his day. Did Yvonne Kenny uh, uh, produce some, some recordings of, of this uh, virtuosic Italian-style singing? Yes, absolutely, because uh, all the, she recorded at the time um, arias from some of the, the really famous arias from Handel's Rinaldo, Alcina, uh, Julius Caesar, Semele and Xerxes. Uh, so Semele and Xerxes um, are, uh, well, Semele particularly is in a slightly different category because technically it's an oratorio rather than an opera, but effectively it's in the same style. Mm-hmm. So all of these uh, pieces are in this kind of Italianate style that we're talking about. Uh, so it's uh, wonderful to hear a student of Yvonne's now coming to present us with uh, similar kinds of pieces. In fact, uh, some of them some of them are, are exa- the I exact mean, same Da Tempeste, Tornamia uh, 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 Vagajad. Yes. yes, yeah. These are some of the really famous uh, Handel arias, which Yvonne recorded at that time, and which Madison is now going to to sing again for us. A different voice, probably a little bit of a different style, um, and uh, a different generation. So it's going to be wonderful to hear how she does that. Let's hear in that fast Italianate style, Tornamia Vagheja from Alcina. Thank you, Alan. It was an enlightening discussion. Thanks, Hugh. It's been great to be part of it. Next episode will be all about the Valadin and the Brandenburg's upcoming performance of his Four Seasons. (laughs) ¶¶